Right, so today I am in Framlingham in Suffolk to meet the artist Gudrun Philipska. Hello Gudrun. Oh, hello Robert, thank you for coming. Well thank you so much for having me and for uh, inviting me to. We are situated in a little tiny, it's not an outhouse is it, it's kind of, um, how would you describe it? Has it has the potential to be part of the main house if you were inclined to knock a doorway through. Yeah, it's a small room. So we met, I have a feeling possibly, when I came across your shelf gallery. Oh, is that? I was trying to remember. Yes, yes. That I is have a feeling I saw something online about this little shelf gallery and I was so tickled because it was literally a shelf in somebody's house which was being curated as a little exhibition and it was your house. Yeah, um, and I loved I loved the stuff that you did. That was fantastic. I'm remembering it now. We had some lovely documentation as well, didn't we, of it? Well, I was just so taken. I was taken by the whole idea of the project that it wasn't a conventional gallery space. It wasn't, it didn't feel as though it was situated in the heart of the art world, as it were, or it didn't feel to me as though it was predicated on anything other than you and your desire to have some art and to curate something literally in your own front room. Yeah. I think that there was a real history, wasn't there, sort of coming out of the 80s of this sort of DIY, putting on your own shows, curating things in, you know, in little spaces. And yeah, I was doing it because I wanted to continue a curatorial practice in a little rural village and do some sort of interesting stuff. And I didn't have any other space to do it. I feel like now there's a real kickback, I've noticed, against little alternative spaces that don't pay artists and it's a really interesting dynamic because of course you know you get something out of it you you get to continue your curatorial practice you get to develop a little project and I mean my idea was that hopefully the artist would also get something out of it too I've noticed there's a lot of um, stuff written now about tiny galleries the white pube you know that the art mm -hmm. critics write about the economies of tiny galleries and interesting because i yeah i hadn't thought of it from a point of view of anything other than just this delightful thing that seemed a great way of thinking about interacting with art having some art staying connected all of these good things and just a reminder that it doesn't have to be packaged up in anything other than your own domesticity or your own home or your own space really yeah I, I mean that stuff is still it's really exciting to me and the idea of the reciprocity that can be between you know a curator I don't even like the the term curator particularly much and you know the professionalization of of curatorship is is something that I find really annoying but anyway just for the sake of the word we use the word so yes reciprocity between the artist and the curator and, you know, I, I did think for a long time that that reciprocity was enough. And I, as an artist leaving art college in this country, you are very grateful to get any opportunity. And that was the mentality that I was in for a very long time. And then when I started collaborating with a Canadian artist, Carly Butler, her perspective was completely different. And she was incredibly militant about getting paid and... Um, artist rights and artist unions and it was a real eye-opener for me because I'd find places for us to show our work that I thought were really you know exciting and nice and alternative and she'd be like well what are they offering us and she'd get she'd, she'd get she'd be quite vehement about it and quite angry so that has been 
a learning experience for me and it's given me a perspective on how artists in this country are quite happy to work in, the, in, in that way just to get something to put on their CV. And, and that can be fun and it can be fantastic and it can be reciprocal and it can be wonderful and enriching and it can also be something a little bit um someone's being taken advantage of somewhere. exploitative yes but we can't i can't quite put my finger on mm. exactly yeah so interesting that dynamic between art and money and because because on the one hand the idea of art without money seems like utopian and it's just this exchange and it's free and it's kind of frictionless and it's done for the right reasons but on the other hand as you say then there are all these dynamics about who's getting more from it or, or whether it should be properly costed or properly reckoned as a as an activity which of course of course it should yes but then of course that the, the whole costing and reckoning and planning and everyone getting paid can completely destroy a project as well and this is a one of those other things isn't it that that i've always thought i'm not going to hang around chasing funding i mean i've spent years of my life writing funding applications and sometimes you just think i'm just going to do something well i remember around that time of the shelf gallery that I was doing a, a project and we were all chipping in and doing it for nothing on that let's just make something happen basis and somebody came up to me and said I'm so envious of you because you know I've spent three years trying to get funding for a project and, and here you are just doing it but of course we, did, we didn't have any money so it's there are two different models aren't there yeah and people choose whether to work with you or not based on how they exactly. value the provided I suppose it's transparent yeah yeah, yeah. exactly well, I wanted to talk to you about your wonderful Arts Territory Exchange project. Can you just describe for me a little bit about what Arts Territory Exchange is and how it came to be? Yeah, well, it, it really came out of living rurally and moving away, being disillusioned with London and the sort of the fantasy of what an art world was. And then I moved to Berlin and I realised that I had a similar fantasy about what an art world was and I went there and I didn't find it. It just wasn't, I couldn't see it, you know, and that was okay. And I just did my writing and carried on with my work that I, I did. And then I, we moved to Cambridgeshire when we had kids and it was quite a sort of isolating experience, but quite liberating as well. And I started connecting. I joined a project called Artist Residency in Motherhood run by Lenka Clayton. And through that, I connected with other artists who lived rurally in the middle of nowhere. And I started this network of mothers initially. And through that first came my project with, with Carly Butler, who lives in um, Vancouver Island in, in Canada. And that was a project based around distance and, and us not meeting physically, where we designed an app that would take our daily pedometer steps and an avatar would walk and the idea was that we'd meet in Newfoundland so yeah the the idea of these avatars being fueled by our daily domestic pedometer steps um so that project with her I see as a sort of a core of the ethos of what arts territory exchange is was playing with the idea of distance as as an enabler so that's the loose model that I sort of present to people when I set them up in partnerships so artists who live rurally you know or feel that they're isolated in some way apply and then what I did is to pair them up like a sort of long distance dating thing and um, I'm glad you said that because I, I was thinking to myself is it like an artist dating agency in a way you're like playing matchmaker to these artists in all these places around the world who are isolated geographically or in some way and here you are 
pairing them up, putting them in contact with each other. Yeah, it's it's a real wonderful feeling when they hit it off as well. It's, it must be like how you feel when you introduce friends and they fall in love or whatever. It's it's really exciting. And getting the, the feedback from people saying, you know, thank you so much. This has been such a wonderful experience and sharing their own isolation or their own rurality across distances. Yeah, it's really, really good feeling. Sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes there's just no chemistry there and you have to repair people. And so what made you want to have this role of connector? Because when we met during that shelf gallery episode, <clears throat> you were um, outside Cambridge. And as you've said, outside of the art world to some extent, and it's seemingly quite comfortable. That seemed to be like your home or that seemed to be where you finally felt you belonged. But then you're making these connections for people, on behalf of people. What made you want to do that, would you say? I think it's just an absolute fascination with wanting to look at other people's locations and not being in a position where I wasn't able to travel and for lots of reasons not wanting to be part of that residency world which involves a kind of world, you know, up until Covid involved a sort of jet setting which I found quite distasteful sometimes looking for ways to be able to see into places. It, yeah, just wanting to see out of other people's windows rather than see into their houses, to look out. The idea of looking out of, of their windows and seeing these vistas. One of the initial things I ask people to do is to take a photograph out of their window and then that will be how they introduce themselves to their partner. And I, I had got so much out of my correspondence project with, uh, with Carly, the S project, our walking project, that I felt like it could be of huge benefit not not just socially but in terms of reinvigorating uh, your career as well so many people flounder you know after they have children or periods of illness and find it very difficult to get back to any point where they have work to show or and can you give me an example or some examples of connections that you've made or distances that have been traversed virtually by some of these connections because they some of them seem really quite remote yeah, there was one of the early ones was um, between an artist in Essex and an artist in um, Alaska. There was a pair, I paired up um, an artist from Kent originally, but she lives in London with an artist in Iceland. And we had sort of discussed that, you know, meeting is not, it's not discouraged, but it's not part of the project, but it was too much. She was straight out there and her and I spoke about it. It's quite, it's quite amusing and she, she travels to Iceland often. And the whole idea of where we where we choose to put our bodies, I find interesting and resisting, resisting that pull. But then what we do as, as artists, tourists, when we are in those locations. And I always say, I always use the word inserting ourselves, which sounds very derogatory. But in, in terms of artists' residency cultures, I feel like people are often just inserting themselves into a location. Parachuted in. Yes. And that's problematic. And I often think that if artists just are very honest about it and say they're going on holiday, I prefer that. Like, yeah, you're going on a self-directed residency or whatever, but it's actually just a holiday. And that's, we could be a bit more honest about how we talk about these things. Yeah, I think it sounds like a really interesting dynamic between if I'm somebody living in somewhere really remote, it'd be easy to project onto that situation certain assumptions or certain values or maybe, as you say, just that desire to go and visit 
could be overwhelming. And so how does that play out in terms of the people who are actually there in these remote locations? Do they recognise that specialness of that remoteness or is it just there every day? Well, the people that I've worked with have such a huge connection and awareness to Indigenous cultures and legacies of the coloniser body, especially in Canada and, and Alaska as well and Australia. And I work with some amazing artists and I think that the idea of critiquing the tourist visitor body is inherent in their practice. It just exists. So I think that is a sort of repelling force that wouldn't necessarily be drawing artists in from other places. It's really difficult, isn't it? Because then the idea of these wonderful people with all their fantastic ideas and contexts about colonialism, they would make fantastic residency hosts. And, and also it's a way for people to make money. Those tensions are very real and I, you don't begrudge someone for wanting to build a residency. It's just being very mindful that there are forces that also should repel us. And so when you connect two artists together, is it primarily for a conversation or just, or is it for a collaboration or is it just to see where it goes or for just the very delight of connectivity? Is Are, are there specific outcomes either planned or are there examples of outcomes that have come from some of these encounters yeah there are lots of lots of examples of different outcomes on the website that can be viewed and that have been exhibited in different contexts but it's quite open so people can just be friends it can just be a friendship thing or a network building thing they don't have to be producing work some people find that they're just not in a place where they want to be producing work but yet they want to make connections and stick their heads out in the world a little bit and that's totally fine yeah so what might be an example of a, uh, a work or, or collaborative outcome? So we had a big exhibition in Beijing at the Today Art Museum and that consisted of those sort of cabinet displays which had letters and correspondence. And then we had focus on a few different artists who'd worked together. There was an artist, Alana Hunt, who lives in Australia, who was collaborating with um, a filmmaker who lives in Anglesey. And their sort of conversation was about um, a large dam that Alana had been working in the archives with images of this dam that was built on Indigenous land. And Joanna in Anglesey was working with the archives of the nuclear power station up in North Wales so there, there was a sort of dialogue about uh, infrastructure and so they were two archival images of these big sites presented next to each other and then they had letters and photographs from their homes. Yes I think I'm suddenly starting to think that I'm being quite reductive in terms of talking about specific outcomes or kind of an artwork that comes out of it but of course it's actually the connection and the interchange and that putting of people together and and the discussions and the conversations and the letters and and, and the exchanges that are in a way as much the outputs as as anything else maybe. Yeah I think so. I mean there are the more literal things like we have artists sending uh, films back and forth and re-photographing over and over again through different locations and those quite obvious overlays which are really interesting and exciting but more literal uh, and then you have quite a few digital interfaces have been produced and there's uh, artists currently working on a, a virtual home the idea that they will share this virtual home together and a lot of the projects are quite therapeutic and it's you know what people are needing at that point and building it for themselves yeah 
And tell me a little bit about um, Lenka Clayton and the artist's residency in motherhood. Yeah. Because I'm not sure how I came across Lenka Clayton, but I do like her work. I think it's very, there's a, there's a lot to love about it. She has a lovely, I don't know her at all, but I was really intrigued that you were part of that because I knew that she had set this up. And I remember there's one video on her website, I don't know if you've seen it, called The Distance I Can Be From My Son. Yes. And I just think that's fantastic. And she sets up this video camera with her young little toddler in the park and the toddler runs off down the hill and she stays with the camera. And you can see him going further and further into the distance. And of course, as a parent, the anxiety levels are, are going. And there's a little timer in the corner timing the number of seconds before she has to abandon the camera and yes, run yes. after him. And then she drops it and runs. Yes, yeah. I think what she was doing was offering the idea of restriction to people as a way of producing. So, And that that is something that resonates with me so much, that we will produce things out of our limitations, not because we are repressed by our limitations, but because we are, you know, excited by them and we can use them. I think she says something on her website, like, it is an opportunity to make work out of parenthood, not about. And then that was a really key thing for me, that it, it, that it emerges out of, and it's not about parenthood. Because, you know, sure. I wouldn't have liked, it wouldn't have appealed to me if it was about. Mm. But it's more that, I was going to call it a constraint, but it's just the the reality of, of parenthood is just how it is, but then you're still finding a way to make some work within and around and and through that period. Yeah, I mean, it is easy to sort of romanticise those segmentations as well, isn't it? I mean, most of the time it's, it's totally, completely shit. And, you know, as we were saying earlier, we just had the summer holidays through which I completely forgot who I was and completely forgot that I had the power to write or think or... It's it's really hard, isn't it? Because you don't want to you, you wouldn't you don't want to complain about it. And maybe there is something really quite useful to the brain about being forced into these different spaces, and then you have to insert reinsert yourself back into your intellectual space. Or the artist residency in motherhood was a way for me to bring those two spaces together in a way that they could have some sort of symbiosis. And Lenka says as well, remoteness is a superpower, and. I like the idea of reframing things, which is what I do with the Arts Territory Exchange as well, that things that can be seen as quite negative. You know, I know a lot of artists that live in the middle of nowhere and complain about the parochial attitude towards art, you know, people making work out of seashells and of beach scenes and just how frustrating it is. But the idea that if you reach out and find a way to rearticulate your location to somebody very far away, and then you don't have to be worrying so much about those people. They, the people can get on with making their beachcombing art or whatever they want to do. That's, you know, that's fine. But it's a way of just lifting yourself a little bit away from that so it doesn't have to bug you. And also it's doing stuff on your terms. It's being authentic to who you are, what your own agendas are, and not feeling obliged to conform to somebody else's agenda, which goes all the way back to the shelf gallery. And what I liked about the fact that you, you wanted to do that, and that was your little act of creativity. And, and likewise, then you've built this enormous body of work and the network of Arts Territory Exchange from your little nerve centre in Cambridgeshire and now in Suffolk and it's a fantastic thing and it's it is what it is and it you know it's all the better for it yeah well I like the idea of, of, of sidestepping these extremes so on one hand you have that very local 
sellable art which is based around a landscape and and has its particular audience and then on the other hand you have this elusive art world that we were talking about you know which is probably just Jeff Koons by himself on the moon somewhere and um, so I, it's finally it's kind of thinking well fuck both of those things I'll, I'll just do my thing and see if other people would like to also connect and that, that's it isn't it I'm, yeah the art world I don't, I don't know. It's a funny phrase, isn't it? Well, I think it's art worlds, plural. There are so many different flavours. And this is certainly something that I've come to realise from doing these conversations. And that's where it becomes interesting. I think if everybody tried to conform to one, one way of doing it, then it would be boring. And also it wouldn't be true to yourself. I can't remember who said it or what the phrase was, but it was advice to a, an artist just starting out. And it, say, it was saying something along the lines of, don't try and take somebody else's way of doing it and copying it because that position's already taken they're already there even if you you know get to become like that person that you admire they've already done it Mm. all you can do is do your own thing and grow that and then see where that takes you then that's what it is I think it takes it does take quite a lot of strength doesn't it to do that and I always had a such a sort of sarcastic tongue-in-cheek attitude to what art was and how I fitted in with that I had on one hand I had a half my family was very artistic and my grandfather was a painter and then on the other side of the family was Polish and my grandfather was a coal miner so I had two extremes of bohemian and then working class and it was a bit of a clash and so I felt kind of in those worlds and out of those worlds and was very happy with that position and when I went when I finished at St Martin's I noticed that people were completely obsessed with the idea of success in a way that I didn't particularly recognise. So there was this whole thing about Saatchi's agent that would go around the degree shows and people would be like, oh, completely excited. And I remember, I remember being in a kind of childish way, I would just, there's no way I would give any of my, any of my work, which was very counter to what everyone else seemed to be, to be wanting. But then again, this, this sort of um, cynicism can be quite debilitating as well. We were talking earlier before we started about regretting not having done things earlier and I was in such a state of cynicism after leaving art college that I didn't really do anything but read for, for a long time and I went and did a philosophy course and didn't really produce anything that I wanted to show anyone for a long time because I was far too cynical and just thinking people were knobs really and it, it took me probably moving away from cities to rebuild and I think I do need to be away from cities and away from people. You've got there in the end, as it were. You found well. It feels to me as though you found your rightful place or, or true centre for your own work and your own creativity. I think so. Well, maybe that is a good point at which to pause and uh, have a cup of tea. Yeah. Fantastic. <laughs> So we are back after cup of tea for me and slice of toast and honey mm. and same for you. Yeah, lovely. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Re- refreshed and revitalised. <laughs> and uh, we were talking in the interval about uh, social media networks online and so on. And I was interested to talk a little bit more to you about that side of things. 
and I noticed that uh, on your website that I think you've put that it's uh, we're proud to be an Instagram free environment was that yeah uh, meta free meta pursuing meta free strategies yes so could you say a little bit about that oh yes well there's uh, quite a, a few angles I'll, I'll, I'll come at it through this angle first which is that I'm obsessed I've always been obsessed with the idea of the world ending and the apocalypse so this sort of comes out of being um, very worried as a child about nuclear war. And then I was obsessed with Terminator in my teenage years and always fully expecting that the world would come to an end and that I would have to be some sort of Sarah Connor figure and she was like my style icon. So always very mistrustful of the status quo, which is fed into a lot of my work and also caused a lot of anxiety in my life. So the idea that everything will fall apart is something that really informs my interest in in networks and for a long time I I, I put aside well I, I didn't really put it aside because my suspicions about Instagram were always there but I think this is something that well everyone that I know actually that uses Instagram feels that we know this is not a safe place we know this is not a good place but we use it because it works and it's a way of creating networks far and wide and reaching out to people. And I foolishly, I put a lot of time into building up my Instagram and I kind of used it for Arts Territory Exchange in the same way that I would use a mailing list, but it was you know, better than a mailing list in lots of ways because you, you have a net, not just of members, but of interested followers. And, but I always thought I must develop other strategies. But the thing is about, as we've spoken, these things are incredibly addictive. I had the Arts Territory Exchange Instagram and then I've got my own personal Instagram. And I don't think I ever would have voluntarily let go of either of them. I was addicted to my strategies of getting followers, which there is a, a formula that everyone will use to gain followers. That was something that I spent years every evening compulsively doing. And I, I guess I was quite proud of what I'd built up with it. Although my suspicions, we you know, were there in the background. And what happened is... Um, I had an email from, well, a notification from Instagram and they said that I had violated their age policy. So they asked me to upload my passport and I uploaded my passport and then they asked me again. And repeatedly, I think it was about nine times I uploaded the passport to prove that I was over five. I think it said I was. And I also went through all the avenues of emailing customer services of course, there is nobody at the other end of that customer services email. There's nobody at the other end of the forms. Basically, some algorithm or other had made this decision and there was no way of me proving to it that it was wrong and it's random check. So I submitted all these proof of age and I, I sent, I went through every avenue and they deleted my account. And once an account is deleted, there is no way I have found in getting it back. And so this is a process. Of, I went through a bit of a mourning process. Um, and how many followers had you lost? Well, only about 5,000. But to me, that was that was a lot. That is and a it, lot. And it was a long time building it. And it felt like something had been stolen from me, which it had. And the thing is, you know that if you if you could have got through to a human, they would have said, oh, yeah, fine. But it, there is no, there is no way. There's no way to get. There's no human at the end there of Instagram. There is not, and and the way that we trust 
them, you know, to be custodians of these things. They deleted a site which was connecting artists and people and actually doing some little bit of good in the world when there's a load of porn on there and awful, degrading, horrible, dangerous content. And that bot or algorithm decided to destroy that. So that just proved to me what I had known already. But of course, I have my own personal Instagram, which I would never, f I would never be able to press that delete button. I still can't. I still can't do it. But for Arts Territory Exchange, uh, it, it spurred me on to pursue the avenues that I was already interested in pursuing, which is for genuine postal and radio communication networks, which completely bypass Meta. So that's where, where I'm going now. And that sounds totally in keeping with the overall philosophy of what you've been doing and your ethos and approach to art and connections and staying local or not staying away from the art world or, you know, the big bad art world, but, but doing it in a way that's a more human level or connecting real people mm. and not bots or not uh, via technology so much. Yeah, I think it's about transparency isn't it and being able to see how things work i'm interested in like anachronistic technologies not just as a sort of fetish or an aesthetic but because they are apocalypse proof and they will keep on working you know this is why i'm obsessed with ham radio that it, it serves a function which can be a part of an aesthetic part of an art project part of this network which is about culture but when if we ever went through a time where culture was temporarily on hiatus or destroyed because people were just thinking about survival it's also there as a, a network that's very important and can maintain connections across distances and i also love the idea that artists would be able to communicate with random preppers that live out in you know Arizona desert or the connecting those worlds is a real obsession for me at the moment and within the ham radio world there is a bit of a movement towards diversifying because most people who use um, ham radio are white guys of a certain age with certain interests so I'm sort of hoping to like jump on that little bit and insert new users into it yeah um, and I like the idea that artists and just humans could take back their networking into their own hands it's not it's not a fantasy it's actually really quite possible and you know we we have these things available to us and all we have to do is learn how to use them and i think it's the it's this it's the laziness and complacency and um the illusion that we're offered by instagram it's very hard to break away from you know why would i want to do an electronics course and and build a radio shack when I can just hop on Instagram, you know. So it's it's encouraging people to break away from that. And how far have you got with it? Have you have you got this enormous sixty foot mast in the back of your garden already? And no. you're kind of, you know, you got a handle and and dialing out to the world every evening. Oh no, I'm not I'm not that far along yet. I'm at the moment I'm struggling doing my foundation level electronics course and I'm also talking to a few arts organisations who are interested in partnering on the project. So we're, we're just throwing ideas back and forth. And I think what, because Carly Butler and I, we've been sort of dreaming about going completely offline in our communication. So we have our postal communication, but then we all, we talk on Messenger as well a lot. So we've said a few times we don't, we'll get rid of the internet communication completely. So her and I will probably trial a radio, a year of radio communication as part of S Project first. That sounds amazing. 
And it will be absolutely fascinating to see how that impacts on things like the pace of life, the ways in which it, it changes how you go about doing things. In other words, presumably, it would make you reevaluate the ways in which you've usually used tech and the things that we kind of take for granted or the routines that we've built around just being permanently connected and having to either then go to the post box or set up your radio or however it works, that slowness that's kind of built in brings it back to maybe a more manageable, you used the word earlier, relational way of um, exchanging, which sounds very healthy. Yeah, I think it is healthy. The only thing that I've noticed over the past few years with postal is that it's become very expensive. And now, of course, the UK, not being in the EU, we're doing a postal project at the moment, which is based on ASMR experiences of unboxing and opening and you know tearing letters and also the anticipation of waiting and all that kind of thing. So it's a travelling exhibition where people document their unwrapping and unboxing. But yeah, the import charges just going over from the UK to France for the last leg of it were huge. Postal rates in the US have gone up by a lot. Perhaps you could just say a little bit more about your interest or relationship to technology. On the one hand, you're talking about your ham radio project. For example, in lockdown, the whole thing about Zoom and the difference between your network of connections via very authentic means, and I don't want to kind of make too much of that but did you kind of resort to zoom then or how does something like zoom play into these networks or these communications is it just an essential part of how things work and does it impact on the ways in which people connect with each other i am really very very interested in video communication and i'm really interested in zoom and i was interested in it in a conference calling sort of medium before lockdown because I'm fascinated by distances and radio and any kind of electronic communication across distances and the idea in early radio communication that people thought that those distances were populated by ghosts and you know the stories of, of Marconi hearing strange whispers and, and, and voices across the sea. And so it's kind of, you know, I'm interested in how humans ascribe narratives to those spaces in between our voices and our bodies. And, yeah, I, I find video communication really interesting in the sense that, you know, companionship and closeness that can be developed without physical proximity. I've done a number of projects. I did a sort of a Zoom staring meditative thing with an artist at the beginning of lockdown, which was half sort of therapy, it was half experimentation with distance so a sort of meditative seeing how long we could look at each other kind of thing um, and how long could you look at each other for i can't remember now i think i was in it i was in quite a state of high anxiety just in general because of the lockdown and she was uh, an artist who's also a, a meditation teacher michelle Kohler, who lives in washington and uh, yeah carly butler and i have done a number of experimental sort of works with our gardens and flower beds there's something we're working on at the moment, which is where the flower beds will communicate based on the, you know, the ambient sounds in each location. So, you know, how the screen swaps to look at different faces if someone coughs or whatever. So it's just letting the technology have its little conversation with, you know, bees and flowers swishing around and stuff. And they're also quite soothing to watch. It sounds really great. 
Well, maybe that is a good point at which to say um, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear all about your endeavours and your projects and your website. When I looked at it again, refreshed my memory, there's so much that you've been doing and so many connections that you've been making. And um, I think what you're doing is, is really great and really a great way to respond to the world in which we find ourselves at the moment. So um, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Robert, for coming all this way to see me. It's great to talk to you after all this this time planning. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Something to Do with Art. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback via social media and check out the podcast notes for links and further information. That's it for this episode. Many thanks to the very wonderful Berwick Livingston for the music, Danielle Blyde for logo design, and to everyone who has taken part and helped me with this project. I hope to catch up with you again soon.